Welcome. You're listening to Sanseat. Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine. To become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Aaron O'Dowd. Today's episode of Sanseet is brought to you by Langevin and Axison Marketing. Langevin and Axison Marketing specializes in social media promotion and public relations. Langevin and Axison Marketing works with campaigns that offers products, books, and services to inspire and improve their lives. They focus on small spiritual businesses, authors, and teachers. Their clients have high quality products and services that they are proud to promote. If you have a business that has the potential to grow, go to Langevin and Axison Marketing and receive 10% off the first month of service. Contact Langevin and Axison Marketing and refer to Sanseet Ship. Hello and welcome. On today's show of Sanseet, we have Jennifer Allen. She is a naturopath and I discovered her in... 2013, I think, um, where she gave a conference at the Holistic Center of Excellency and told us what she does and food and so on. And I got so excited, I decided to go for a treatment with her and to discover more about me and my food. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks, Erin. Thanks a million for having me on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Where did your passion for food come from? I think it's been there forever, since I was really, really small. Um, and not even just food, it was the overall picture of how everything fits together, how good diet gives you good energy. If you have good energy, you're more creative, you can be more involved in your community, means you have a healthier environment because you look after it more because that's where your food comes from. It just seemed to all link in, so it just made sense to me, do you know? And did you want to become a naturopath or did that kind of come out through the woodwork? That probably came bit by bit. Early on, I had studied some environmental um, issues originally when I did my qualification. And as I said, that seemed to make sense to me. This is all part of a continuum where I thought, well, if you have a healthy environment, the organisms in that environment are going to be healthy as well, in theory anyway. And it seemed like humans were just a little microcosm of that. If you had a healthy, say, gut bacteria, if you had a healthy mind, if you had a healthy immune system, it meant the overall organism would be in good shape as well. So I think it probably started in a more global field of, of environmental health. And then maybe it got a bit more fine-tuned down to, well, how does each individual take in that? And what contribution can you make to keeping them in good shape? And if each person is in good shape, can they give, give more back to, to their individual communities too? I see. And can you explain to us what a naturopath is? Yeah, it goes way, way, way back. I won't bore you with a, a history class, but um, I think everyone would have heard of Hippocrates and he's kind of the father of modern medicine. But even predating him, we had Asclepius, you know, the Greek god of medicine. And he was a physician. He, w- he was a man, but he was elevated to the status of god, which was a bit unusual at the time. That, that particular um, career move didn't really happen too much, but he was just held in such high regard because he had such an overarching view of health and healing. And he had set up these, these institutions called the Sleepions. They were named after him. And there were several of them throughout ancient Greece where people would go to be purged, to be cleansed. Um, they'd be given a cleansing diet. 
the greening was actually a really key part of it too because it was understood at the time that some of the things that could be interpreted from the dreams would actually help in their healing and they would give offerings to the gods a bit like people still do now if someone's sick people tend to go and say a prayer or light a candle for them um his logic was very much about you treat the whole person you don't just treat one little component you treat the whole person so much so that at a lot of the asclepians around greece they would have had a theater they would have been set in really beautiful areas they would have had a lot of um, water treatments and cleansing because it was seen as you're nourishing the whole person you're nourishing the soul of the person rather than just the treatments and farther on from him you have hippocrates and his his father was a priest at one of the asclepians the one in cos in greece and he became maybe a more structured version of how to interpret that early understanding of what health was because pre-Hippocrates it was very much segregated into if there's something wrong with that organ we'll only look at that bit of the body and they didn't factor in the whole person at all so Hippocrates was really the first one to say we need to start keeping notes he kept medical records which was unheard of at the time he really brought in the idea that the body must be treated as one integrated whole and he was hugely involved in getting the, the person to help get themselves back into good health. It wasn't just about you go to see the physician and they fix you. It was about getting the person involved. So the choices they made, the foods they ate, how they spent their, their time getting outdoors, being active, all of that came into it. And that's where we get the expression, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. That was Hippocrates and that's going back to, you know, 4th century BC. So that concept has been around for ages. But maybe the more modern version of naturopathy or nature cure is around since about the 1800s, where you had various different people throughout Austria and Germany and um, a lot of Alpine traditions where they used their local herbs to cure people. They use water cures to cure people. And um, that evolved eventually when that idea was probably brought back to America um, into the modern day version of what we call naturopathy now, which is a very holistic but very low-tech way of looking after your health, you know. Why is it so low-tech? I suppose because it's it's one of those um, deceptively simple things where a lot of it is very common sense. It's eat food in the freshest state possible and when in season and get outdoors as much as possible and get some daylight and move around as much as you can and sleep when you need to sleep and laugh when you need to laugh and you know be as creative as you can possibly be and all those things on paper they sound very logical and they sound like very obvious things to do but if you think about it we tend to do the opposite entirely now we tend to be locked away in little cubicles whether it's in an office or in an apartment block and we're stuck at a computer screen or a tv screen a lot of the time and we're eating things out of little metal cartons that have been picked probably a couple of years beforehand if they ever grew anywhere if they weren't just made in the factory sticking them into microwave ovens and having lots of sugary drinks and lots of stimulants to try and keep us awake so we can look at the screens for longer and then we're not sleeping well and the whole body clock is thrown out of alignment so on paper it's it's very simple stuff it's move around eat the right stuff get outdoors enjoy your life and um We've complicated a lot, I think, over the years by, by trying to add more and more and more to technology, which is hugely helpful in certain instances, but maybe people are, are slaves to it sometimes as well, you know. And um, so what kind of food should a person eat to get that um, benefit? It depends a lot, I think, on, firstly on the person, on their constitutional type. And by that, I mean you will meet one person who is 
maybe very, very, very slim, very pale. They feel the cold very easily. Um, they're very low energy, very weak voice. And that type of person would be very low energy, very um, deficient chi, as they say in Chinese medicine. So if you were to, to throw a lot of very cooling foods at that person, like raw foods and dairy and juices and smoothies, that's actually just going to deplete their energy. It's like they have the very tiniest little fire and you keep throwing buckets of water on top of it. It's not going to get a chance for the, the fire to build up at all. Whereas in contrast, you could have somebody who's very robust, very ruddy complexion, um, maybe a, a high pulse, very loud voice, loads of energy. They never seem to sleep and they're always on the go. They can tolerate a, a few more cooling foods and they might actually benefit from a few more cooling foods. Whereas if you give them a lot of very hot foods, very um, spicy foods, it'll just maybe aggravate some symptoms like inflammation and uh, those types of symptoms. So that would be one factor, the constitutional type of the individual, but also where in the world you are. So in Ireland, it's, it's quite damp a lot of the time. Um, and so it's very swampy conditions. So you don't want to add to those swampy conditions by having very cold foods. So certain things are going to just um, ag aggravate that. That would be, you know, salads and smoothies and juices. So in theory, they're very good foods, but not for everybody. Some people need a bit more um, lightly cooked food or steamed food or um, pickled foods or fermented foods. But as a rule of thumb, Mediterranean diet is probably one of the, the ones that ticks a lot of the boxes. You know, it's got lots of oily fish. It's got lots of nuts and seeds loads of brightly colored vegetables and some brightly colored fruits as well really good olive oil a bit of garlic and and maybe a little bit of sugar in there too in the form of honeys and things like that but overall it's got a pretty good balance maybe a bit too much emphasis on on wheat but otherwise it seems to be fairly well balanced but in other parts of the world that simply wouldn't work you know they wouldn't have access to those those brightly colored fresh vegetables so you have to work within what's available as well if you can get kale then you eat kale if you can get turnips then you eat turnips but you try to vary it with the seasons you mentioned constitutions you base your research around the chinese uh ayurveda system a lot of that would come into it there's there's some there are some differing opinions between ayurvedic medicine and chinese medicine and western medicine like naturopathy but there are some universal truths that seem to come back to to every single situation and it's, i suppose in the case of naturopathy there's a little bit of detective work involved where you're trying to piece together what components make a person tick or what things are relevant to their situation to their picture so certainly there would be cases yeah where you would look at is this already a very cool person or someone whose energy is very very poor or is it someone who could run and run and run and they have a ton of energy and how you approach whatever it is needs treating would be very different depending on, on the person. So yeah, you'd factor that in definitely. Um, someone might have very liverish symptoms in, in Chinese medicine. Liver would relate to things like um, lots of itching on the skin or floaters in the eye, little streamers in front of your vision. Um, or if they have kidney trouble, kidney trouble can manifest through dental trouble, through ear problems. So on, on the face of it, you might say, well, no, my kidneys seem to be absolutely fine. But then when you start to go through what other symptoms they've gone, they might say, well, I do have chronic lower back pain or my knees are always giving me trouble or I'm very prone to ear problems. And they're all in the kidney constitutional types. So you're looking at it in a slightly different way, I suppose. You mentioned about kidneys and uh, sore knees and sore back. Are they, mm -hmm. are they related? Yes. Yeah. In Chinese medicine, they would see 
a lot of those symptoms, five element theory is, is how they describe it. They would see a lot of those symptoms be related because they don't look at just the organ, the kidneys. They look at that whole energy meridian. So the, the, the field of energy that relates to that organ runs right throughout the body. So there'd be a certain pathway that relates to the kidneys or the spleen pancreas energy or the liver energy. And so they look at patterns there and they'll see patterns in kidney problems and that would be classically knee problems or dental problems or ear problems or lower back problems so what might seem very unrelated in from a western um, pharmaceutical point of view they're not necessarily unrelated from from a chinese medicine point of view or from a naturopathy point of view and that's that's like i was saying a, a second ago that it's trying to see the whole person and the whole picture rather than just isolating one particular symptom because you, you might miss a whole load of other key information if you just reduce it down to one one symptom and a symptom is just the body's way of getting your attention you know if there's something that's consistently coming up or someone says i'm very prone to chronic infections or i've had a heart problem for a while or i've had a digestive problem for a while there's really no point in just masking those symptoms you want to get to the bottom of them and say well why do they keep recurring what are they trying to tell you and um, are there particular tests that you recommend for someone to get if they're starting out working with you? There, there can be. It, it depends. I always try to keep the cost down as much as possible for people. And so you could run the gamut of tests from just about every gut dysbiosis test um, to various hair mineral analysis tests to all kinds of tests. But a lot of the time, if someone suspects, for example, a particular food isn't agreeing with them, and yet they're eating it several times a day. The very first thing I'd say is, well, can you isolate that food and can you eliminate it for about a fortnight? And it takes about that long for the body to say, right, that's that gone. Now what are we dealing with? And then at least you can see, okay, whatever symptoms were there, have they improved or are they worse or are they the same? And then you can at least rule out, okay, it turns out that's not the problem. There's something else, or maybe that is the problem. And I know there's definitely cases where for some people it's something as obvious as caffeine. And I've, I've had people who've had, you know, chronic migraines and they've been on some really, really severe medications trying to deal with the migraines. But they've been on a lot of caffeine, either through fizzy drinks or through coffee. And were adamant that they needed that because it helped to give them a boost when the, the migraine was kind of setting them back and making them feel totally fatigued. And when they did eventually say, OK, I'm going to chance leaving out the caffeine and see if there's any improvement. And within two or three days, they were seeing an improvement. So sometimes it can be something really, really obvious like that. For other people, it could be something subtler. Or for others, it could be something that's a really common food in this bit of the world, but it doesn't mean it's, it's the best thing for them. It could be wheat or dairy or something like that. So a test might be necessary, but it mightn't be. It could be as simple as just stop eating this particular thing for a while. Or perhaps it's that someone's just not very, very active. And so their energy is really, really sluggish. And ironically, the one thing that, that doesn't help that is to, to be very sedentary, then it, it makes it more sluggish. So if someone can even take a tiny step towards being more active, it can open the gate just a little bit for them to say, actually, my energy is picking up now, or I'm sleeping better, so I'm waking more refreshed, and I feel more inclined to do things now. So tests can be hugely helpful. And certainly from the point of view of integrative medicine, where you would employ a certain amount of holistic approaches with a certain amount of clinical approaches that can be the best of both worlds because you can run all the tests and then you can have a more holistic approach to, to acting on the results of the tests and <clears throat> you you said that it takes two weeks is that for every kind of food or is it different from each body system 
it would vary from person to person, I suppose. Some people are highly sensitive to certain foods and other foods would would have a more radical effect. So you notice it more quickly. And there's also, there is that expression, the dose maketh the poison. And by that, it's meant that, that someone might say, well, I hear the water is very good for you. So I'm, I'm drinking, you know, 10 litres a day. Clearly, that's way, 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 way too much because if they're just drinking regular tap water, they're probably having quite a few impurities in there as well. And they're actually diluting the electrolytes in their system too much. So it's not so much the water's fault, it's the quantity is the problem at that stage. So you might find somebody who says, if I just have a little bit of dairy from time to time, I grant, I can tolerate it. In that case, you'd say, so maybe they, they do have X amount of enzymes to break down dairy, but if they expected their body to deal with it four or five times a day, they might hit a wall. And they might say, actually, do you know what? I feel a bel- bit congested. My sinuses are feeling a bit clogged. I'm feeling a bit bloated. And then it might be their body's way of just saying, no, we can't handle this much dairy. Other people, they simply don't have the enzymes to break down dairy at all, so they can't use it. They can't make effective use of it. So they'd be better off not to have it at all and have alternative foods instead. And if you don't have the enzymes to break down yogurt or other food, does that mean you become allergic to gluten or or dairy? Allergic is, is possible, intolerant definitely. Um, a lot of the time with an allergy, people are often born, not always, but people are often born with allergies. So their immune system becomes hyper vigilant whenever it sees a marker or an identifier for a particular food, it pounces on it. And that's where you get those very extreme reactions. You know, if someone goes into anaphylactic shock, for example, that's a really extreme example of an allergy. Intolerances are more you might start to get some symptoms, but they happen over a gradual period of time. They're not an immediate flare of a reaction. And that's why they can be harder to trace because people say, well, you know, I ate wheat two days ago or three days ago, and today I'm not feeling great, or today my skin is itchy, or today I have the headache. So they might not draw a direct correlation between eating the wheat or the dairy three days ago and having the the symptoms now. So it, it depends what exactly the situation is. You know, if it's something that's, a mild reaction. People can often get away with it for a long time and the body is absolutely brilliant at compensating. So it'll compensate and compensate for as long as it possibly can until it hits a wall and that's where intolerances usually arise. And a lot of time people will find by the time they hit their mid-30s or their 40s, they'll notice their body seems to be maybe fussier or it seems to react to things in a more more dramatic way. But that's often after decades of, of compensating and it eventually says, this is exhausting. I can't, I can't keep compensating. You're going to have to change a few things. And if someone was to work on one particular area, what would it be like a gut or the liver or is it just um, kind of see what happens? The gut is probably the key area in the sense that your immune system is trained in the gut. So the immune system really starts its whole life cycle in the gut. That's where you have these tiny little patches called pyres patches on the, the lining of the gut wall. And literally that's where those immune cells begin to recognize self as in your own cells and their safe cells and foreign or alien cells that it needs to attack. And if it's the case that it's it's already having issues, so we call it dysbiosis, if the gut isn't processing things very well, and it's not absorbing nutrients very well, where maybe you've got too many bad bacteria, not enough good bacteria, you're getting a lot of bloating, you're getting a lot of fermentation rather than digestion going on. And so you get a lot of bad pH, it's the, the wrong balance, the wrong acid-alkaline balance in the gut. And at that point, you'll really start to see symptoms in the whole system. And that's back to what we said about Hippocrates earlier, that if you look at the integrated whole of the system, 
we're very aware now that if someone has we'll say an emotional imbalance that'll aggravate their physical symptoms so if someone's very very stressed or they've been depressed for a long time that will affect their, their physical health or likewise if someone has physical symptoms that can be a sign that all isn't well emotionally so if we'll say the gut health is out of balance the mind will often be affected as well or vice versa because a lot of the same neurotransmitters or a lot of the same chemicals that are produced in the brain are produced in the gut as well so it really is the second brain we often refer to the gut as the second brain but it really is and maybe if, if people listen a little bit more to, to gut symptoms early on rather than just taking antacids or taking whatever medication to, to deal with pains or spasms or constipation or those types of things it would really help them a lot in the long run because if, if there's too many toxins circulating in, in the gut that will have knock on effect on, on just about every other system in the body because that will circulate back into your system and that's where people do often get uh, emotional symptoms or mental sy- symptoms or um, or just diverse physical symptoms not just gut related symptoms so very often people associate gut health with purely gut symptoms it can manifest in so many other parts of the body and um, and just sorting that one part out can really go a long way to releasing a lot of potential in the rest of the body because it ties up a lot of energy if the body is constantly having to fight to to maybe deal with foreign foods or deal with intolerances or deal with foods that are that are causing problems in the gut um bacteria i know there's good bacteria and bad bacteria in the gut mm. what mm. what is good and what's bad for for us the, the vast majority of the bacteria that we have in the gut should be good bacteria now we have x amount of bad bacteria but we need x amount they're actually they serve a purpose to do manage a certain amount of of things that we can't break down otherwise so we need x amount of bad bad bacteria I'll put it in inverted commas the problem is, I suppose, there's been a lot of um, ad campaigns around bacteria being, you know, the source of all evil. And it's made a lot of people very nervous of bacteria to the point where they want to have antibacterial wipes for everything and they want to sanitize their hands and they want to antibacterial wipe their, their chopping boards. And what it means is that where we need X amount of good bacteria in our environment because that actually stimulates our immune system, we're, we're getting to live in much more sterile environments. So it's very hard for the immune system to get trained up properly if you're in a very sterile bubble. And that's that's maybe not such a problem if you've had a couple of decades of, of being around grubby things and going out and maybe kicking a football around and then coming in and eating a sandwich with, with grubby hens. That's actually not such a dangerous thing. What What is more dangerous possibly is infants who have grown up in a really, really sterile environment, they've possibly been exposed to a couple of courses of antibiotics before they're even one or two years old. And then they're being fed from maybe bottles that have been been washed with antibacterial substances and then brought onto solids that have been chopped on surfaces that are antibacterial wiped. And it all adds up to zero stimulation for the immune system, which, which maybe sounds okay. People think, well, that's great. There's no challenge to the immune system. But the problem with that is when they go out into the real world, if they're suddenly in a crash environment or they're mixing with other people where there's a whole host of bacteria that, that will get through the cracks, they have no way to deal with it because their their immune system has never been trained up for that. So it, it's a shock to the system. And as a result, you can get some very profound infections that the body simply doesn't know what to do with them. And it takes some fairly powerful antibiotics to try and figure that out. So bacteria in and of themselves are not the enemy at all. It's, it's how we handle them. And... A lot of people have maybe got a slightly misguided notion at this stage that, well, if 
certain things are bad, like candida, like bacterial infections, those types of things, I can get rid of them by not eating certain foods. When really that's not true, we need to have a certain amount of good and bad bacteria. We need a certain amount of candida even in our system. What you can do is boost your immune system. And that comes from eating more living foods, so that's fresher foods, um, seasonal foods, fermented foods, maybe like sauerkraut or miso soup or those types of things. Um, and that actually trains the immune system up to be so much more resilient. And that's what it's all about. You want a resilient system. You don't want a precious snowflake system that, that functions well in very, very rarefied conditions. But as soon as you introduce it to any kind of challenge, it just malfunctions. It can't deal with it. Wow. And um, uh, bra the brain, is there foods that we can improve our cognitive um, enhan uh, performance? Utterly, utterly. And funny enough, they're not necessarily foods that are so far from what's good for gut health either, because like I said there a minute ago, we need fermented foods for the gut because there's actually bacteria in the gut that thrive on the bacteria in the fermented foods. So it actually helps to feed those. There's prebiotics in certain foods and in certain raw vegetables and in certain, um, maybe not such popular vegetables here, but things like bitter foods, bitter, bitter plants like dandelion and a little bit of rocket even, and foods like artichoke, those types of foods are fantastic. They're great for prebiotics. So they provide the right, the right backdrop, the right canvas in the gut for the good bacteria to thrive. And then you can feed the good bacteria with, with as I say, sauerkraut or miso soup or kombucha or those types of things. But by having that good balance in the gut, you're also going to help the brain activity because exactly the same as the neurotransmitters that are in the brain are also in the gut. And serotonin would be one that people probably know quite well. It's to do with um, mood and keeping your mood very elevated and keeping very um, enthused about starting new projects. All of that revolves around having serotonin in circulation. And people who have very, very low serotonin, they'll often find their mood really, really plummets where they mightn't have outright depression, but certainly they went to bouts of very low mood, very low motivation, very hard to get themselves going. And a lot of the time, if they do go to the doctor, they might be given an antidepressant to, to help them out. When what they really need is, is to find a way to naturally stimulate serotonin in their system. And that's eating tryptophan foods and tryptophan rich foods would be turkey and green beans and those types of things, um, cottage cheese. So they're, they're very readily available foods. These aren't, you know, expensive supplements or anything. They're actually quite normal foods. But additionally, the, the brain relies hugely on good oils. So you're looking at things like oily fish, um, really good olive oil, like cold pressed olive oil. And in naturopathy, there's a thing called the law of similars. So if a food looks like a part of the body, it's usually good for that. So if you think of something like a walnut, it's in it encased in a very, very hard shell. And it's in two very distinctive halves with all these little, little grooves and corrugations and indentations. It's pretty much exactly like the brain. So omega oils would be very, very rich in walnuts as well. So Fresh walnuts are fantastic. Pecan nuts to the same extent are very good too. Broccoli is absolutely excellent for the brain. So a lot of, of very normal, very cheap, very, very affordable foods are really good for the brain. A certain amount of hydration is obviously very important for the brain too, whether that's water or herb teas, um, but certainly oils are absolutely vital because they're called essential fats. The body can't manufacture them. You have to eat them. How how much how much water should people drink in a day? It varies 
so much, Erin, because if you have someone who eats an awful lot of vegetables, which we all should be doing really, and they maybe have an awful lot of fresh herbs and they might have a little bit of herb tea in there as well, there is an awful lot of moisture already in those foods anyway because they're they're naturally very, very juicy. If you think of celery or, or onions or lettuces or those types of things, very juicy foods anyway. So they're already getting in quite a bit of water, but in a very absorbable way because it's in with the trace elements and the minerals and the vitamins that are in the vegetables. If, on the other hand, you have someone who maybe eats crisps a couple of times a day or pizzas or biscuits or very salty, very stodgy, very sugary foods, they're getting very little hydration there. And possibly they're having some sweet drinks too. They might have a fizzy drink or they might have coffee, which would also dehydrate you, ironically. We often think fluids are good, but if there's a lot of caffeine in there or there's a lot of sugar in there, it actually tends to have a diuretic effect. It makes your body want to shake out those toxins. So you actually lose a lot of moisture. So they will have very different liquid requirements. Equally, you could have someone who's got a really active life. They're doing lots of physical training. They're sweating a lot, so they're losing a lot of water. Someone else might might have a very sedentary life and they might be losing much water at all. They still need X amount of water to shake out those um, waste products out of the body. So the, the rule of thumb probably is don't wait till you're thirsty because by the time you have that thirst reflex, by the time your, your body is aware, okay, we need some fluids on board, it's usually too late. Your cells are already a bit dehydrated at that stage. So wait until you're thirsty is not the best approach because... A lot of people have a very low thirst reflex as well. They're, they're hardly aware that they're thirsty and they could go the whole day without drinking any water. And if anything, they get confused for feeling hungry and they might eat something instead and it's, it's fluids that they need. So I would always say, can you have a glass of water near you, just a room temperature, not not iced water because it's, it's too much of a, a shock to the stomach. Um, and what else is in there? Can you have a bit of coconut water in there or can you add in a little bit of... Uh, sea salt or, or seaweed or a little bit of honey if you're training so that at least it's more like an isotonic drink your body can really absorb it very well if you're just drinking lots and lots of tap water it's fluoridated water it's not got a whole lot of, of things in there that are of any use to you so you're just going to flush your electrolytes you're going to actually dilute the, the minerals that are in your system and that's that's not what you want to do is there a way so, yeah. of test sorry you can say I was just going to say, if you have a glass of water with you right through the day and just keep topping it up. So at least you say, well, I know I've had five or six during during the day and you may have a couple of herb teas as well. And then if you have a good few vegetables in there as well, that's that's a good a good dose of water. But I, I'd be wary of, of giving one particular amount because I think it varies so much from person to person. Is there a way of testing um, to see if we're hydrated or dehydrated? One of the simplest ones to do, and it's a, it's a very old-fashioned one, is one that you can do yourself even, where you, you pinch the back of your hand and see how long it takes for the, the skin to bounce back to normal. And the skin should be quite elastic, it should be quite juicy. And if, if it takes quite a while, if it stays quite puckered for quite a while, like longer than a few seconds, then that's a sign that the, the skin has gone quite creppy. And even though to us, especially in this, this age of beauty industry and appearances being all important and all that, all that nonsense, we're very fixated on the skin and what happens on the skin. But from the body's point of view, it would prioritize the key organs first. So it sees the liver as being an absolute priority. The heart has been an absolute priority. The brain is super important. So it would make sure they're hydrated first and the skin is the last priority. So if if you're looking at your skin and it's a bit crepey and a bit papery and a bit dry, 
are a bit flaky. That's a sure sign that the, the internal organs are probably trying to eke out what little bit of moisture is there too. So you don't want to let it get to that stage. So so you want to try and get yourself into the habit. And it does take a habit for some people. Some people have no interest in drinking water at all. But they might find, don't like water, but I'll drink a fennel tea if I have to. Or I'll have water if there's a bit of lemon juice in it. So whatever tricks you find help you to, to drink it, that's that's worth doing. Or for some people, it might just be, I'm just going to load up vegetables and, and I'll get some fluids in there um, or cut back on some of the more processed things because they're going to just rob the fluids from your body. So less salty things, less gluteny things, less sugary things. And um, not to say you can never have those things. It's just to tip the balance a bit in favor of things that are more hydrated naturally. So that would be your fruits and your vegetables and your herbs and uh, herb teas. Um, supplements. Is there any supplements that you recommend? There's the, the the key I think with supplements is the word. It's a supplement. It's only meant to be an addition to your diet. And where I think I'd be a little bit wary of how some people treat supplements is that they could have a shelf load of supplements at home, and there won't be a stick of vegetables in the fridge. You know, they'll they'll have tipped the balance so far in favour of of getting just about everything they feel they need from supplements that they're they're missing out on some really key foods. And I think a crucial part of what's in your food, especially if it's fresh food and it's relatively local or relatively seasonal, so it's even fresher, it's the life force that's in it is huge as well. And it's hard enough to take that life force and encapsulate that into a tablet or a capsule. So even though someone might say on paper I have X amount of vitamin E or on paper I have X amount of B vitamins from having this capsule or that capsule, they're not getting the same life force as they would get if they were having nuts or seeds or leafy greens or those types of things. So I think a supplement really should only be to fill in some blanks unless someone is treating some very, very specific condition where they need to have huge quantities of a particular thing because it's it's been used as a very therapeutic approach to to deal with some imbalance that's going on in their system but having said that one that i would think is pretty important because people are so bad for eating oily fish i would say something like an omega oil supplement is a good idea for for an awful lot of people because we see it more and more in children now you know it seems to be an awful lot more people these days are diagnosed with things like dyslexia, whereas years ago, people were just told, oh, you're slow or you've learning problems. We, you know, we don't exactly know what's wrong with you. And the, the, the difference is night and day when you when you have kids who are diagnosed as dyslexic, when they're put on a fish oil supplement, their handwriting improves, their concentration improves. It has a huge effect on their cognitive ability. So it's a very measurable difference when you see it in someone who's been diagnosed as having some kind of cognitive issue. But the vast majority of us could probably do with a boost for cognition anyway, because we tend to be a bit bit sluggish. And unless someone is really actively engaged with maybe trying to learn new languages or trying to use their their less dominant arm to do various different activities, those types of things which stimulate brain growth or doing a lot of exercise, which stimulates brain growth, we're probably all a little bit below par. We could all do with boosting our, our brain function that bit. And... Just by having a little bit more omega oils in there, it just oils the cogs. It means that there's certain synaptic messages that can move back and forth that bit more efficiently, that when we learn things, it sticks a bit better, that when we're trying to recall names or numbers or information, it comes to, to mind a little bit better. And we're, we're so well aware these days of the difference, because if you went back even 10, 20 years ago, the idea that 
the, the, the brain has this plastic ability, this ability to grow and change, would have been would have been left out, out of the laboratory and often was. There was a lot of researchers who were told, you're crazy, you know, if you think there's really any any movement in the brain. Once it's built, once you reach a certain age, that's it. It's cemented into place. Whereas now we know it's the complete opposite. The brain is hugely plastic. It's got this neuroplastic ability where the more you can actually harness really positive connections and the more you can feed that brain tissue, it, it has astounding ability to grow, to recuperate, to build new connections. And uh, it's, it's a really exciting field, actually, because it's very much up to us then to decide, well, what do you want to prune and what are you going to grow? What synapses do you want to actually develop in your brain? And what synapses are you are you not so pushed about? So it just means there's absolutely huge capacity there, depending on what foods people eat, what activities they engage in, what emotional profile they're bringing to what they do. The, the, the sky is the limit, really, in what they can do for the brain. But if they can add in uh, an omega oil supplement to that, it just potentiates all that process so much better, you know. What is your opinion on uh, vitamin D supplements? in our environments yeah I, I definitely agree with it um i probably would say there's such a huge percentage of the population that could do it because traditionally we, we tend to associate vitamin d with you know bone density and those types of things it because it, it is the cofactors for just about every biological process that happens in the body so just having enough calcium in the diet is of limited use if you don't have the keys to unlock it. And those keys would involve vitamin D and boron and a few other minerals. So it's it's a huge part of that particular equation. It's really, really important for bone health. But the more research that's coming out now, the more we're realizing actually it's also involved in your chances of developing different types of cancers, in your chances of developing cognitive decline like Alzheimer's, and in your ability to, to ward off a whole host of diseases. So for, for a lot of people, it's to do with location on the globe. If you're closer to the equator, usually vitamin D levels are, are, are pretty okay. And the farther you get away from that, where you're not getting exposed to so much daylight either, vitamin D levels tend to tend to plummet. And the, the so-called healthy range is still quite modest. You know, it's a fairly arbitrary number. So there's actually a, a huge um, span that, that you, can, you can go to with vitamin D. So a lot of people might have a very low reading of it. 30 or 40 and they could push that up to about 80 to, to get to what would really be anywhere near a healthy healthy dose so supplementation is is probably a useful idea with that the one thing i would say is vitamin d is one of the fat soluble vitamins and your body stores fat soluble vitamins so probably it would be a good idea if someone was thinking of starting on a vitamin d supplement to have their levels checked first that way you could decide well how often do I need to supplement? What dose do I need to take? Do, do I need 5,000 I use or 10,000 I use? Do I need to take it every day or every other day? Probably for most people, their level is relatively low. It's on the low side, unless they're outdoors a hell of a lot, unless they're eating sardines every other day, unless originally maybe they were from a, a part of the world that was closer to the equator. That definitely gives you a, an advantage too. Um, but most people, I would say, they're cooped up indoors most of the time. They're not eating much oily fish. They're outdoors they are covered most of the time when they're out they're, they tend to, to not get that much skin exposure and that's where a lot of the manufacture of vitamin d happens and it has a profound effect because as soon as the vitamin d levels rise any neurological symptoms tend to tend to calm right down cholesterol levels tend to stabilize it has just such a knock-on effect on so many different biological affairs going on in the body um 
protein uh, do you recommend protein powder or pure protein what's your opinion on that where possible i would always say look to your food first it's back to that thing of let food be your medicine and medicine be your food so i would always say well can you source some decent quality protein so that i suppose the risk is people often think protein equals meat and there's an awful lot of substandard meat out there. So someone might feel, well, I'm eating loads of chicken or I'm eating loads of beef or pork, but it might be of dubious quality. It mightn't be the, the healthiest animal to begin with. So obviously if the animal wasn't that healthy, you're, you're just eating less than ideal protein. Whereas if you have access to slightly more um, wild animals, like a bit of rabbit or pigeon even or those types of things you're getting a bit more variety in there or even duck things that aren't as intensively produced whereas if it's things like um you know factory produced chicken it's such a substandard meat that that it's it's almost on a par with some you know frozen burgers or something in terms of its fat profile because its diet is really really poor so you can only benefit from whatever the animal has eaten so if it's eaten very poor diet you're also going to eat very poor quality protein Whereas if someone is more inclined to say, well, I'll have a little bit of animal protein, but the best quality I can afford, and then I'll mix it with some beans or nuts or seeds or eggs or tofu or uh, good cheese, they're probably actually getting a better balance there. But it, it definitely depends on lifestyle because there's some people, as you know, if you're training a lot, your your demands for protein will be fairly, fairly high, you know. But you can make up some of that with some plant-based things quinoa and those types of really, really nutritious seeds. But you'd still probably, to really activate it and potentiate it properly, you might need a little bit of animal food in there too. And that could be the tiniest bit of, of meat or it could be eggs, but at least you're having something in there to, to get the balance right. Protein on its own wouldn't be the way to go. I wouldn't say sit down and eat a steak. I'd say, well, are you able to eat a tiny bit of meat, but mix it in with, as I say, beans or lentils and loads of vegetables and that's a, a better better balance, you know. Yeah, and um, through the research that's coming out today, what's exciting you in the in the area of um, what you do? I think I'm, <clears throat> I'm a little bit fixated on neuroplasticity, what we were talking about there a minute ago, because just the, the results that are, are coming to the fore in a lot of the research and a lot of the first-hand experience, people putting it into practice, it's, it's a fascinating area. Um, and a very simple premise that synapses, they're just the little connections from, from one neuron to the next. Synapses that fire together, wire together. And the, the, the logic of that is basically, if you use that particular pathway or that route enough, you lay down enough of a path there, the brain remembers that and says, okay, this is obviously an important link. It's an important connection. So I'm not going to let this one go. So you're literally building new synapses. You're, you're really strengthening that connection. Whereas there could be older patterns or older ways of doing things that you, you don't use anymore because okay, that's not useful. Maybe when I was younger or when I wasn't so aware of the importance of exercise or being outdoors or good diet, I, I used a very shortcut way of doing things. I cut corners and I, I, I wasn't as healthy as I could have been. But I've changed those patterns now. And so I've changed emotionally how I how I deal with situations too. So I think how, we, how you even place emphasis on the activity, if there's a particular activity you want to work on, if you're repeatedly coming at that in a, a dreading it way of, oh, Lord, how am I going to face this? You're bringing in a very emotionally negative package into that. And your, your brain responds to that too, and your endocrine system responds to that. And so your whole organism 
treats it with a bit of dread of how are we going to face this. Whereas if, if you can look at it in a more positive frame where you see the potential outcome and the potential benefits and you can really motivate yourself to, to pick a new path because of that, it's hugely empowering in terms of how your brain will start to build connections and start to see rewards and start to really lay down a very sturdy path there. So it's it's very much about pruning the bad connections and, and growing some new connections. And it applies to just about anything. If you do it on a regular enough basis, whether it's learning a la- language or learning how to meditate or learning how to play the piano or lift weights or whatever your exercise of choice is, even just thinking about it, and th- th- that's been measured in a lot of tests now, just thinking about it in a really focused way has built new connections in the brain. So without ever touching a piano, without ever picking up a weight, just putting a really, really clear intention behind focusing on how that would be, how it would feel, how you'd be after doing it, has a huge impact on how your brain builds new connections. So it's it's hugely useful because it's not just um, looking at neuroplasticity from the point of view, of how do we eliminate cognitive decline or how do we eliminate the potential for some really, really harrowing mental conditions to develop later in life. It's also saying, well, how do you get the maximum out of what potential your brain has right now? And it's um, it's a fascinating area from that point of view because you, you get to choose an awful lot more than we would have thought a few years back. You know, a few years ago, we thought, that's it, the door is shut, whatever way it looks now, that's how it is. Whereas now we know, can you set a really clear intention? Can you set a really clear emotion? Where are you putting your emphasis? And if your emphasis is on watching the news headlines or watching a soap opera, you're, you're dragging yourself back down every time. Whereas if your emphasis is on getting outdoors, doing interesting things with interesting people, being creative, maybe drawing or singing or whatever your thing is, all those things spark new connections in the brain. And it's it's, um, it's a hugely exciting um, area to, to be working on. <clears throat> Excuse me. What um, excites you about this area? I suppose anything that's, that's at a kind of a groundbreaking phase in in history is always interesting so it's always always a privilege to be around in a time when we're getting to see that firsthand where the the rules of the game have changed completely because there would have been an awful lot of of um, conditions not just mental conditions but things that were affected by our mental state and our mental ability that would have been very set in stone not that long ago 10 or 20 years ago even and you see the research that comes out now, and even the likes of Dr. David Perlmutter, and you know, he's got a lot of research on the negative impact that gluten can have on cognition and brain function, and just the difference it makes to take that out of the equation and put in some some good foods instead that are actually helpful to to build in the brain and bringing in some good activity because it's been it's been measured so many times now that someone who has a lot of physical activity in their life through exercise or training. They're producing a lot more BDNF. That's the growth hormone for the brain. So the more that they're training, now if it's in excess, it can be it can be a negative impact. It can be damaging. But the more that people train, if they incorporate a lot of activity into their life, their brain actually starts to to lay down more cells. It actually starts to grow more cells. So you can you can apply that to just about anything you want to do. Then if it's that you're trying to learn a a, a new skill of any sort whether it's something as seemingly slow or impenetrable as meditation, and some people feel, oh, I know I should, but I don't have the time to do it. And that's the irony of it. That's the very time you probably need to do it. Or if it's something that someone has had a latent desire all their life to say, I'd love to get out and train, to even do something on an amateur level, or I'd love to learn to play an instrument, or I'd love to learn a language. 
that suddenly that that as soon as that idea is lifted of well that's not possible all bets are off it's it's a bit like roger bannister when he he, he broke the record that time of the four minute mile up to then no one was able to do it it was assumed it was physically and physiologically impossible and as soon as he did it a couple of more people broke that record again almost straight away afterwards because the the notion that you couldn't was gone and sometimes that's all it takes just the notion that you can't do something and once that's taken out of the equation it, it opens the field right up so i find it just a really exciting phase and i suppose it takes a lot of pressure off people as well who feel they've been cornered by well i can't eat certain foods or i can't do certain things it, it opens it right up where you suddenly say that's not as important as we thought it was before because you can you can almost trump that card by taking on a whole new mindset literally taking on a whole mindset you're building new brain cells and uh, i suppose educating your system and how to deal differently with what could be the same challenges you might still have a particular health condition to deal with or you might have a particular limited set of circumstances in terms of what you can afford to to buy for your diet or what hobbies you can afford to engage in but you can still maximize the, the the parts that are available to you and i think that's that's a very empowering thing for a lot of people you mentioned a hormone in the brain is that a new hormone or is it a hormone that we know about already bdnf that has actually been it's not it's not that new now there would be so many hormones in the brain and you know it's the usual story we'll start to to analyze a few or research a few and so we be, begin to feel that well that's the key there's several keys because the, the, the brain is a fairly complex piece of kit. It's like the ultimate supercomputer, you know, so no one could afford to buy one if they'd walk into shop buy one. We're all lucky enough to have one at our disposal. So if you're looking at something like the brain, partially I'm always a little bit wary if it becomes about one particular thing, you know, if it's about just serotonin or it's about just acetylcholine or it's about just BDNF because they're all part of the equation but they're not the only piece of the story. So it's a, it's a brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And basically what it means is the more that you can produce, the more new brain cells you can set down. So someone who maybe even had some brain deterioration can halt it firstly and can even reverse it um, where, where we would have assumed a couple of years back that was just impossible. You know, if you started to lose brain mass, it was never going to come back. And it might come back a little bit more slowly depending on the age of someone or their lifestyle. But... The, the fact is it can be halted and it can be reversed. So um, BDNF is one that, that tends to respond quite well to, to exercise, especially. It, it, it really seems to to hike the, the levels of BDF, BDNF right up when we have a bit more physical activity in life, which makes sense because traditionally, as in going back to, to the jungle, we would have been active most of the time. That was that was the nature of, of how we functioned. We just had to be active. Whereas now we're unbelievably sedentary a lot of the time. And so the brain just switches off. It just says, well, there's nothing here to stimulate me. So I'm going on a tea break. Whereas if we can if we can give it a bit of work to do and it has to deal with new challenges or learn new information or deal with new environments, it suddenly has to do an awful lot of work. And so it has to produce more BDNF to cope with that. Um, and and it kind of kind of makes sense, you know, that you can you can take what, what would be happening physically in your surroundings and use it as as a, a fuel for the brain to say, right, there's information here that I need to process, so I need to get a bit more active, because it just goes into into I suppose standby mode. Otherwise, you know, if it's if it's doing the exact same thing every single day, it can almost predict what you're going to eat. It can predict what you're going to wear. It can predict what you're going to say. There's no surprises there. Um. So so challenges in in terms of learning 
are fantastically useful for the brain because that's how it grows. What is a typical breakfast for you? It, it varies quite a lot. Um, I suppose the fact that I'm, I'm less inclined to have bready things or starchy, carby, gluten-y foods now, it would vary a bit more. There could be anything from sweet potatoes involved. There could be smoked salmon. There could be eggs. There could be rice flakes with um, some berries. There'd always be a few seeds thrown in there. Um, usually a bit of oil of some sort, or olive oil or something, maybe a few walnuts, um, a couple of Brazil nuts, uh, mug of tea. Um, not so much raw, not so much raw foods, and especially at, at the moment, the weather is fantastic, but especially as the weather gets a bit cooler and uh, it gets a little bit damper, more more cooked things, they might be very, very well cooked, they might be just barely cooked, but yeah, heated foods or cooked foods would definitely be the way to go. And um, are you a fan of MCT oil? Uh, I always say, how is something produced? So I would say if something has been produced in, in really, really um, stringent quality, then fantastic. If it seems like it's been overly processed, if it seems like it's not from a sustainable source, if it seems like it's more expensive than, than it's worth or it's not readily available, I am always a, a, a little bit more wary then. Um, where oils are concerned, ideally, I suppose we'd be eating the most readily available oils, so from things like nuts and seeds, because they grow pretty well here. Um, but having said that, you, you can't eat a really good olive oil either, because again, that will stimulate BDNF. It really helps to, to get more, more of that growth factor going in the brain. So anything that's a useful oil for the overall health, but that can be sustained, you know, if you can get your hands on it on a regular basis, then then it's a good thing. Um, I know ketogenic diet is a trend in the uh, nutrition world. What is your opinion on it? I, there's two sides. On the one hand, if you look at something like, what was that diet called where everyone decided they were going to eat rashers and steaks? And um, it became very popular in the States there for a while. And the, the, the premise of it was that it was quite a ketogenic diet but a really unbalanced ketogenic diet because the emphasis was entirely on meat. And as I said earlier, not always the best quality meat, but it wasn't matched with vegetables at all. It wasn't matched with seeds at all. It wasn't matched with oils at all. So ironically, ketosis in and of itself was was a more natural state for, for a lot of our forebearers. They, they would have always been in, a, a, certainly it wasn't starvation, but they would have been in a state where they might have gone long periods of time without food that was just the norm whereas we rarely go any much time without food now and at that a lot of it is very very starchy food starches just weren't that readily certainly gluten starches weren't that readily available because we hadn't started to cultivate them you know if you went back a few thousand years they just weren't part of the the mix so even if we were having starches it might have been tubers it might have been um to some degree from some fruits the little bits that were available or a handful of vegetables that were just foraged Whereas now we've, we've tipped the balance, Atkins diet, that's it. We've tipped the balance where people take one piece of information and say, well, if, if ketosis is a good thing, and if I can get into a state of ketosis by eating loads of protein and very little of anything else, then I'll do that. But that's actually not a sustainable diet at all. And certainly environmentally, it's not a sustainable diet. Whereas if someone can say, right, I'm veering I'm towards ketosis, but I'm also having my broccolis, and I'm having all the vegetables that I need in there, the green leafy vegetables. 
I might even have a little bit of dark chocolate in there. I'll have loads of oils in there. Um, I won't just use red meat. I'll try and get some organ meats. I'll try and get some oily fish. It's it's just a more balanced approach. If, if someone's just having the one type of food all the time, it's not necessarily the way to go. In, in any respect, it's not sustainable and it's um it's not diverse enough. You, you, your taste buds get a bit bored after a while. So if someone was going to stick with... Um, what would be known as ketogenic diet, then you want you want to make sure you're getting plenty of fats, but really, really good fats. And going going way back, there would have been an awful lot more emphasis on fats. And we've just become so terrified of fats these days that we tend to stay well away from them. And if anything, we, we choose low fat this and no fat the other. That's not how it was. Because if you think about it, if people were hunting and gathering, they didn't know, they didn't have a meal plan for what they were going to find the next day. So if they found something that was calorie dense, and especially for something that was fatty, they, they made sure to eat it at the time because they, they knew that their body could actually process that very, very well. So a little bit of fat, a little bit of protein is a really good idea. And certainly less um, gluten foods, less carby foods wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, you know. In looking back at what you've done so far, would you change anything? Uh, I don't know. I suppose I would do more workshops, more talks. Um, invariably, giving talks to groups is really, really, um, it's very insightful. It's very interesting because you might have a group that is dealing with a particular issue, whether it's MS or Parkinson's or whatever. And so they're very eager to find out more about their condition and what they can do in a more natural way for their condition. And it sounds obvious, but what they can do in a more natural way on a daily basis is what they eat, how they live, how they're breathing, how they're sleeping, how active they are. And they're the things that they don't get to chat with the consultant about because they might only see a consultant every six months or 12 months or so. And so they might just get a tweak of their medication or, or a very quick run through of how are the symptoms, what's worse, what's better. But it's right back to what we said at the start. That certainly isn't the Hippocratic approach. It's it's very much just look at the symptoms and um, don't look at the person. Whereas I think when, when I'm giving a talk to a group, you can look at the person an awful lot more and you're asking them, how do you spend your free time? What are your hobbies? What do you enjoy doing? And they, it, it seems almost like like it's, it's an unnatural question for them because they never get asked that. And it's hugely important because for a lot of people, either they haven't been able to fulfill their hobbies because of their condition, or they've developed a condition because they've had to live in a very, very um, prescribed way, a very limited way. And they feel, well, if only I could have done this earlier in life or I should have done the other earlier in life. And so it opens up a whole other conversation that isn't just about you need to eat X amount of grams of this or you shouldn't eat that. It's way more holistic than that. It's looking at how the person ticks. And ultimately, that's that's what you want to see, because if you meet 20 people with on paper the same condition, you're not talking to the same person. You know, each one has a very different belief system behind that. They have a very different outlook. Some other person might be super capable and super um, animated in trying to figure out solutions and research what else they can do. And someone else might be very resigned to it and feel, well, what's the point? You know, I have this condition and this defines me. So so I like I like that side of it. Possibly that would be something that that I'd look at more in the future. Okay, more specific workshops that that really get to the the meat of what drives people and what what makes people tick, and how that how that's impacted on their health, but also what they can do to 
to use that in their favor to change their health. So rather than it being a negative thing that's holding them back, they can actually say, right, I might have this condition or I might have that or I might be limited by this, but it doesn't matter. I'm still going to do all these things that, that are going to impact on my overall day-to-day quality of life. It's um, That's the key. You know, if people feel that they're they're able to, to thrive in their in their own skin that's that's the key whatever, whatever their physical condition is it, it's it almost becomes secondary then because the person is still able to achieve whatever they need to achieve you know in all the research you've seen so far um, all the clients you've met and so on is there one piece of advice that you'd like to give us keep it simple i would say keep it simple um people overlook the simple stuff so much it's when you when you do eat, just sit down and enjoy your food. Don't run and race, and you know you're running after a bus and you're grabbing a sandwich. If you can, if you can, it's not always possible. But to just get really nice quality food and really savor it, just really enjoy it, and just a huge amount of gratitude for it. I think gratitude is absolutely key, and the simplest interactions with people to really be there as opposed to running off to the next appointment if you can. I think those things can really infuse how you approach a whole bunch of other more complicated things. Um, sim- simplicity is probably the key on, on all levels, whether it's where you get to spend time, what you get to eat, the things you get to do, enjoying the fact that you, you get to sleep after having a nice long walk or the fact that you get to go for the long walk when maybe last last week your, your leg was busted and you couldn't walk. It's those little things just to be grateful for the, the simplest of things. And I think probably by acknowledging those simple things and being grat- grateful for them, you get more of them than this. It seems to be a bit of a snowball effect as opposed to counting the um, the what's gone wrong. It's trying to count the, well, what's good? And there's this usually way more good than, than not so good. Where can we find you, Jennifer? I have a website. It's yourkeytothrive.com. Um, and there's various different blogs there um, and links to some really good mindset stuff if people want to look into meditation a bit more. Uh, I also do a weekly piece in the, the Limerick Post, so it's in under healthy living. So that's that's online, people can see it online, or any local people probably get a copy of it in the letterbox anyway, so they might be familiar with it already. Um, and uh, obviously I'm available then to give talks wherever I'm needed, so usually groups will ask me to come and talk to their, their members, wherever their base is. So that's that's any given day of the week, could be anywhere, wherever I'm, I'm needed. Excellent. And um, what's your plan for 2016 and 2017? I think probably more of the same, but also more creativity. Um, I, I, I draw as well. And uh, so definitely have to get an exhibition together at some stage later on in the year. Um, but I think it's bringing creativity in, into everything, trying to be a bit more creative in how you, how you think, how you problem solve, how you approach things. And it, it, it sometimes takes a little bit of a leap of faith to see... If you're talking to someone, how 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 much can you bring them along on that that path? Because some people want very nuts and bolts answers. Other people are willing to dive in a bit more and really see what makes us tick and what what's behind us. And uh, I think just being a little bit more spontaneous with that and a little bit more open with that is huge. So it's it's about trying to bring bring that into all the stuff I'm doing, the talks and the the workshops and the the sessions. Um, and there, there's there's talk of a book. I've been writing this this page for the Limerick Post now for about eleven years, and people are forever asking me to publish a book. So you never know this this could be this could be the year, and that that takes shape finally. Excellent, Jennifer. I want to say thank you for coming onto the show and sharing your stories, knowledge, and experiences. 
Not at all. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.